0: All righty, good afternoon, it is currently 4.17 p.m. on June 20th. Uh, the Eurasia Center WantCast is back on a nice hot DC day to discuss recent diplomatic events, uh, to highlight um, meetings have happened on the European continent in the past week. We had the uh, G7 summit in, Car- uh, Carbis Bay on 11th to th- on the June 11th to 13th, uh, and then after that, we had the NATO Brussels summit uh, designed to be on top of one another for the the world's leading democracies to have the one of the first in-person uh, diplomatic uh, engagements since the pandemic, and the pandemic pay- played a key role in both meetings and today we will discuss uh, beginning with the G7 and then going on to the NATO summit. Uh, so, the world's uh, top seven economies, the G7, met in Carbis Bay. Uh, previously, uh, prior to the annexation of uh, Crimea by Russia, it was the G8. Russia has been removed from the G7 as a result of that and that's why there's only seven uh, countries. Uh, and the joint communique from said summit read we the leaders of the group of seven met in cornwall on 11th to 13th june 2021 determined to beat covid 19 and build back better as an aside you'll note that joe biden's domestic agenda to build back better uh, seems to have made its way into the formal g7 communique there we remembered everyone who has been lost to the pandemic and paid tribute to those still striving to overcome it Inspired by their example of collaboration and determination, we gathered united by the principle that brought us together originally, that shared beliefs and shared responsibilities are the bedrock of leadership and prosperity. Guided by this, our enduring ideals as free, open societies and democracies, and by our commitment to multilateralism, we we have agreed to to a shared G7 agenda of global action to end the pandemic and prepare for the future, to reinvigorate our economies, to secure our future prosperity, to protect our planet. To strengthen our partnerships and to embrace our values. So, uh, this document and the G7 as a whole, uh, for people who don't know the structure of, the, of a summit like this, there are lower level meetings among uh, ministers and aides and diplomatic staff on specific agenda items, uh, women's issues, economy, certainly global health. Uh, so, those all those lower level meetings are coalesced into a singular document like this. And the uh, common sense of mission and common ideals really made really shown through in both the G7 document as well as the NATO one.
1: Yeah, uh, this is Noah, everyone. Welcome. Uh, hello. Thanks for listening. And. Uh, Just want to add on and let our listeners know, for those who may not know, um, the G7 countries were also joined by the leaders of Australia, India, the Republic of Korea, and South Africa. So they had a nice mix, and they even brought in some other nations to discuss their uh, big topics that Casey mentioned earlier, and um, they definitely got to hit on all these points and had some good uh, ideas and points that they laid out in their communique, so.
0: Uh, so is there anything that came out of the G7 that surprised, uh, either you, Cole, or or Noah?
1: Um, I don't necessarily think anything was surprising. Everything that they talked about was what was to be suspected. They uh, had a big focus on COVID-19, and I think that was definitely what was to be expected to be the highlight of the summit. So I definitely think that nothing was too surprising, but I don't know, maybe Cole, do you have any different ideas on that? No, to me, it was all pretty
2: standard with what Biden had been pushing and indicating it's kind of a, retor- a return to a more sort of traditional U.S. stance, I think, um, compared to what the administration was with uh, President Trump's time in office that um, did what caught my attention was uh, they seem to have at least a little bit more of a focus on uh, the digital realm um, obviously with the situation with potential Russian involvement with hacks against the United States, especially major um, infrastructure projects such as uh, gas pipelines. This focus seems to almost have been a, a response to those attacks and an indication to the rest of the world that you know these very powerful countries are have taken note of this and are going to work towards not only a more secure cyberspace, but also one that can help more with the economies, but also one that helps other economies. There was a, a mention in the communique about how larger countries and economies can sort of take, a, take advantage of weaker ones. So they seem to be wanting to move towards more equitable economic share, or at least provide more opportunity for economic growth for smaller countries.
0: It was certainly a a forward looking document. As you noted, one of the first ones that we'd seen uh, a sharp focus on the digital era era, and what economies look like moving forward. And certainly the pandemic has accelerated that trend. Uh, Some of the uh, large results that we saw coming out of it were the billion dollar uh, joint donation to the COVAX uh, initiative. Uh, We discussed previously uh, vaccine equity and the global distribution of that. And this is an opportunity for uh, leading global economies to come together and say that for for lesser developed economies across the world, especially in the global south, that there will be uh, distribution of donations coming their way. Uh, We certainly saw... uh, a level of unity that had not existed in the Trump era on the global minimum uh, tax rate of 15% that um, finance ministers had approved previously. That wasn't, as you noted, a surprise uh, that had been communicated in in advance of the summit. Uh, There were still tempered expectations though on things like uh, trade policy, both the European Union and the U.S. Trade Representative remain skittish as to whether there will be significant uh, uh, reduction in trade tensions between the U.S. and the European Union. And it didn't look like there was any large breakthrough um, on Biden's most recent trip. Uh, in, in terms of what I found interesting, uh, Section 70 uh, stridently and overtly notes support for the uh, Olympic and Paralympic Games in Tokyo, which seems like something that Japan may have requested. Yeah, I
1: was actually just gonna, I was just looking at that and I was gonna say something as well. I definitely, that I thought that was an interesting thing to throw in there. It definitely seems like Japan probably wanted something like that said so that either more support for holding the to- the Tokyo Olympics this summer and just trying to make it look like it's being supported by the summit so it was interesting how it, it was thrown in there right at the conclusion.
2: Yeah to me obviously yeah, Japan definitely seems to have pushed for that but it kind of almost also seems a little tacked on there at the end. I mean, the entire start seems to be really concerned with COVID ensuring vaccinations, all these things, but then there's at the end, a kind of a return to normalcy for a very developed country that, you know, might have more access to these things than a lot of developing countries um, could have. So I'm not sure how they, to me, it's a little bit of a conflicting, um, narrative but that might just be my cynical mind playing tricks on me there um just because a return to normalcy for some countries but you know most of the world is still struggling significantly including um india who was there and represented so i think that maybe there should have been more maybe i think the communique may have been a little stronger without uh, a focus on something returning to normal when so so much of the world is still struggling
0: I wonder if there's a subtle acknowledgement that while the, the G7 countries may be supporting a uh, drive to global equity through uh, vaccine distribution and donation, the COVAX initiative, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, that there you know certainly is still at large chasm between the, the top and the bottom. And as you noted, pressed by domestic and economic concerns, the United States, Europe, Japan, China even uh, will will go ahead and start to leave the, the rest of the world behind as, as they put COVID in the, in the rearview mirror through vaccination and uh, herd immunity, whereas other countries are, are a long way to go. I think I read recently that there are still five countries in the world that have not gotten a single uh, vaccine administered.
1: Yeah, they spent a while in the health section talking about vaccines and whatnot. And it just, like Cole said, it seemed like a major contradiction to what they were saying by throwing that in at the end about the Olympics, because it seems like they're trying to spread out the vaccine more. And they even acknowledged how not enough of the world is vaccinated yet. So I definitely think that it's an interesting contradiction.
0: So those, oh, sorry, do you want to say something, Cole?
2: No, I was just gonna put in there another issue potentially with not necessarily a a contradiction, but they did focus heavily on the environment and getting to net zero or having um having the their carbon emissions and all these things were great goals for these uh, countries for the very wealthy countries but at the same time it's also kind of forgetting the other countries that are in the world that can't necessarily do that simply because of the cost of green energy or a lack of resources that sort of thing um it all kind of goes to a criticism I've been hearing more and more about the G7 that it's somewhat out of touch with the rest of the world because it's primarily very Western countries who are all very developed and obviously very wealthy, but they're trying to push the world to do things that is a lot easier for them to do than it is for the rest of the world to do.
0: Yes, Cole was referencing there, the commitment to global carbon neutrality by 2050 that is certainly a plausible goal for you know, the seven countries represented here and maybe um, South Korea, but for for example, India or South Africa would have significantly more, more difficulty getting there. Um, so we discussed uh, discontinuity within uh, the G7, two themes that uh, shown through throughout or a commitment to uh, Western democratic ideals, as well as a strong focus, uh, I felt reading through it, on a commitment to uh, gender equality and women's rights, which really seemed through through all the issue points that were brought up, that there was a consistent focus on gender equity, uh, including the, the pandemic, which the, the document noted had uh, taken some uh, setbacks as as a result of covid-19
2: yeah all all great things to push for for western countries but other countries you know for cultural reasons uh, practical reasons you know these western centric ideals could cause their own problems in in those respective regions. that's not to say that obviously, you know, women's equality across the world is impossible or democracy across the world is impossible, not at all, but um, a group of Western countries or Western leaning countries saying the world needs to do X, Y, and Z kind of harkens back to an older colonial idea of we need to civilize the world. So that could, in the end, cause more resistance than otherwise.
0: There was definitely a butcher saying that we hadn't seen in the last couple of years of uh, liberal idealism uh, that probably came from the Americans as well. And I'm sure the other, other countries in the G7 were not opposed to uh, letting that message come through it. So let's head on to the next uh, of three uh, large diplomatic engagements. The third, of course, being uh, the summit between uh, President Biden and President Vladimir Putin of Russia, which we'll discuss next week. Uh, But NATO, the North Atlantic Council, also had a heads of state and government meeting on uh, the next day after the G7 conference on uh, June 14th. So what are the key takeaways from that event?
2: To me, it seems like the biggest one um, was a sort of triumphant return for Biden, at least for the US re-embracing NATO um, you know, with the Trump administration was, I, I don't know, not necessarily anti-NATO per se, but was very critical of the alliance, and it made a lot of Europeans and other members of the world view the. US. commitment to NATO as less than solid, whereas here it seems like Biden was really reinforcing NATO and reassuring kind of repairing those um, frayed ties and saying that the U.S. is going to support NATO and will always be there to support NATO in the end.
1: Yeah, and I definitely feel like just like the G7, um, it was definitely future looking and they made a lot of uh, comments on how they want it to look in 10 years from now and whatnot and just even farther than that. And I think that, they are trying to make an impact with it. And I think that it was a big takeaway from that, that they want to move forward and be better than they have been in the past,
0: so. Yes, this this document to me, potentially even more so than the, the G7-1, strikes a tone of, we, we're declaring preemptive victory over COVID-19, and here's what the true hard security concerns of the day are and how we intend to address them. Uh, there, was a, there was sections specifically dedicated to thanking frontline healthcare care workers, uh, noting specifically how the, the respective allies were inspired by their, their hard work and courage during the pandemic, which, of course, is all well and good. Uh, also noting the role that uh, militaries and the defense establishment played in the pandemic response, especially within Europe itself. And this uh, meeting had some things noted for the first time like China being included uh, in a a NATO communique for the first time, Uh, certainly nowhere close to the level of attention paid to Russia, which was effectively singled out as uh, belligerent against the the global order, interfering uh, in in what the the heads of state noted as hybrid warfare, which was specifically noted to have the potential for drawing an Article Five response for the first time. That uh, that was a clear warning against uh, malign behavior from from Russia and other governments. Uh, the response to to China, noting that NATO is prepared to to work and engage with, but also be concerned about. Uh, there was a presumably American requested section on 5G and telecommunication security, as well as you know traditional uh, concerns about uh, carbon neutrality by 2050 and a commitment to a rules-based order and the uh, United Nations-led uh, governance of the world.
2: Something I think, or that I personally found um, with the focus on China was it's kind of a a lot of bark without a bite, so to speak, because China's area of influence, at least for now, is outside of the realm of NATO jurisdiction in really, way. Some commentators believe that even Hawaii isn't protected by NATO. Um, Obviously, that probably wouldn't fly. But you know any attack that China does militarily in Africa or Asia against anyone other than the United States, NATO isn't legally obligated to really do anything in such an instance. So I think that you know while it shows support across the board for Europeans against China, the alliance itself, I don't think any thing that they said has a lot that China might might stop and think about because, NATO can't do anything, at least legally speaking, in my opinion.
0: Uh Cole, can you uh, just explain to listeners why the why Hawaii may or may not be protected under NATO? Let's wrap that up.
2: So, one of the big reasons was that when NATO was formed, it was formed to protect the North Atlantic area and territorial parts of Canada and the United States. The issue that Hawaii has is that at the time NATO was founded hawaii was not a state it was just an outlying territory of the united states um well alaska is part of the continental united states and so it was encompassed in that entire geographical definition hawaii kind of falls into that weird area kind of like what happened with the falkland islands with the uk it's a part of the uk but it's outside of the um, geographical region that NATO actually covers. So that's why you know, NATO didn't get involved when the Argentinians invaded the Falklands. But nine, after 9-11, Article 5 could work, even though the attackers were from or getting support from Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and whatnot, because the attack actually occurred in the continental United States. So it's just a weird quirk of the treaty that it's not entirely clear what would happen if China attacked the United States through hawaii but i think practically it would probably still trigger at least a a general response amongst us allies
0: and that is an interesting legal concept but on on a pragmatic level does demonstrate the increased saliency of a regional security alliance in a globalized world where you had you know, Russian-based hackers uh, harming fuel uh, distribution across the entire American East Coast. Uh, the, the document specifically notes the concern about the cyberspace, uh, the space uh, above all of our heads, uh, communication satellites could trigger an Article Five response was, was one of the new things noted and that you know, a country as far away as, as China, their, their Belt and Road Initiative and investment is reaching into uh, the NATO sphere, particularly on the, the Eastern and Southern flanks.
1: Yeah, I definitely think security in all forms was a big uh, talking point with, here with NATO. And they addressed uh, specific countries and specific areas and what's going on. And they condemned, like uh, Cole was mentioning China, um, whether it is all bark or, and no bite or whatever. It, um, they definitely did try and focus on security and talk about what's going on and general security threats that may be happening in the world right now.
0: So I I should note that NATO did not explicitly condemn China. The the two countries that they did very forcefully condemn were Russia for malign actions against uh, NATO allies, uh, including in the cyberspace, as well as Belarus for continued uh, repression of opposition groups there, as well as the uh, kidnapping of the Ryanair flight. Uh, And China was just noted as a potential concern strategic rival. Yeah, that focus
2: on, oh, sorry, go ahead. You go. Um, I was gonna say that focus on Russia even extended beyond um, just issues against just the United States or Ukraine or whatnot. Um, they focused a lot on Georgia as well, which, um, an art which a longer um, history shows that the Russians have been occupying parts of Georgia for quite some time now, um, ever since about 2008, and NATO. Getting closer to Georgia, um, in theory, Georgia, I think, could join NATO. That is a, sort of a direct rebuke of Russia and puts more pressure on Russia as an, now another NATO country has direct borders with the Russians. Um, I don't know how far their Georgia cooperation will go, but NATO mentioning Georgia, I think, is a, another direct kind of rebuke of Russian imperialism in the region
0: exactly so before we wrap up are there any uh final points or ideas we'd like to, to bring up before we end the show for the day
2: i think the only thing i would notice while a lot of the the rhetoric is aggressive in the world it's not Entirely unusual to see these kinds of rhetorics from government organizations. Obviously, NATO is going to be a lot more aggressive and militaristic, but it is a military alliance. So it's kind of its point. The G7 are all very close allies. So they're going to be very close. So while these groups may seem very unified, it's not necessarily indicative, I think, of the rest of the world's feelings simply because these two organizations contain essentially the same members um, that lead them or, or have heavily connected through each other in some way.
0: Noah?
1: Uh, yeah, I, like what Cole said, I was thinking that same thing. And I just, I think the main takeaway with both these summons is they both commented on the pandemic and how they want to move forward from it. And, that they are starting to try and look at it as a past thing. And the G7, especially, commented on how they want it to be over by like completely over by 2022 and have 60% of the world population vaccinated. So they're definitely focusing on that and they have high ambitions for that. So I think that was one of the major takeaways and something that hopefully can come to fruition.
0: Yeah, I think Cole brought up a po- pertinent point about how these are all close partners and and, and NATO parlance allies uh, coming together on a single document. Uh, this was also a year where it was probably easy to, you know just breathe a sigh of relief. No, the the Americans are back. The world is no longer burning. and there's there's a sense of uh, stability in Washington. And in the face of, you know, a rising Russia a return to some sense of normalcy after COVID-19 that the uh, partners and allies are all together. And what we'll see uh, next year is the writing of the strategic concept for 2022, which will presumably be a more contentious uh, document where some of the fissures that do exist within NATO, it should be important to note that they are continuing to, you know, shape the, the direction of the alliance and the nature of purely defensive and responding to outside influence versus, you know, taking taking policy and action that mitigates the the risk and likelihood of hybrid warfare, as they noted, will really come to that come to a head. And with that, I'd like to thank listeners for uh, listening to our to our podcast, uh, and wish you a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Stay
3: safe and be well.